Okay. Ready? Yeah, so I have the page and the sun flashes in our eyes with immediate. It's like 123 in my thing, but what sentence, paragraph are we on? We feel ourselves? I have this on uh, 124, according to Buddhism. Yeah, me too. Okay, I got that. I was just testing you guys. And Clark won. <clears throat> so I'm just imagining seeing, you know, we see so little of each other in terms of the, our whole body that when we go back to life, we're going to be like floating, floating pieces of body like this, and it will just be cut off like with a piece of plywood. Wow. <laughs> What do you think? Would <laughs> that be okay? Would that be okay? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> and furniture would have to be all different, wouldn't it? <laughs> wow. I still have my legs, Kim. Well, you say you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you say you do. Yeah. <laughs> Prove it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we're going to go in alphabetical order. So I have to tell you guys this since Peg's not here. So my daughter was really mad, mad. I wrote in this in one of my pieces. She was really mad at us when she was a teenager one day and she wrote a note at her door and it was like, you know, I hate you all. I'm never going to talk to you again. And if you laugh at this, I'm really never going to talk to you again. And, and so and I had so much trouble not laughing last class reading this because it struck me as very funny. <laughs> so anyway, and I've been thinking this week too about how uh, Buddha would say the uninformed worldling. He would dress people who, who didn't know what to do, right, as the uninformed worldly. And th this guy seems to be like, you're bad if you don't do this stuff. So... So uninformed worldling to me is just like, that's where you are right now. And then, you know, in a few lifetimes, you'll be a, a little bit more informed worldling, you know, <laughs> on and on and on. But not that you're, anything's wrong with you. Does that right. make sense? I mean, a lot of times, I, I think a lot of times you don't know what you don't know. And he does seem to be coming down pretty harshly on people for what they don't know. Well, also, if you, if you did all these things, would you be any better of a person? You know, if you did them like an actor, this is your, it doesn't seem, it seems just that superficial, just doing the right thing. And how long could you maintain it? Like some of us get up in the morning and there's something like bad we've been doing, like eating a lot of ice cream or something. And, you know, and then we can we can hold off to like 10 o'clock and then we start eating ice cream, right? It doesn't last long because it's, it's not internalized. Okay, Who, who's going to read first? Uh, I've got one question. Uh, yes. Where, where is Peg? Oh, I don't know, but she has a, um, a, a council meeting right before this. That's all. Oh, okay. So she's not out of town or anything? I, no, I, I, oh, I could look at messages and see if she sends something. Yes. Oh, this isn't good. Uh oh. 
I'm heading off a headache and I've been on Zoom eight hours today, so I'm thinking I should rest instead of coming to death and practice. Would you facilitate for folks this evening? All right. So, so thanks for asking. Yeah. Okay. Eight hours of Zoom. Lord. <laughs> I think if we all read different paragraphs simultaneously, we could finish the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we gotta get serious. Matt, come on. Okay, sorry. <laughs> okay, so uh, Donna, Clark, Donna, Kim, Matt, Nancy, Paul. Good. Good. Great. Clark. According to Buddhism, material form or rupa is one of the five aggregates of existence, the others being feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. There is the rupa which constitutes our own bodies, and there is the rupa which constitutes external objects. None of this material form, however, within or without, can rightly be regarded as being self or belonging to a self, nor even as a nor even is any unquestionable foundation of reality, because it is all impermanent, unstable, subject to, the, subject to dissolution. Moreover, it is all conditionally arisen. It does not stand on its own, but depends on various supporting factors. The plain, seemingly factual matter we see and touch is actually composed of four basic material elements. Mahabhuta, the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. The names do not refer to literal ingredients, but rather characteristics that are present to various degrees in physical objects that in fact determine the appearance of the objects to our senses. The earth element is the characteristic of solidity, of hardness or softness. The water element is the characteristic of fluidity or cohesion. The fire element is the characteristic of heat and cold, of temperature. The air element is the characteristic of motion. These elements in varying proportions constitute the perceived physical universe in all its immensity and complexity. They are, it should be understood, mere characteristics or qualities, not singly or altogether any kind of durable essence or identity. Donna, am I next? You're yes. next. And nobody needs the screenshot, right? Right. Okay. Within one's own body, the earth element manifests itself most notably in the more solid parts, such as hair, nails, teeth, and bones. Other liquid parts, such as tears, sweat, and blood, exemplify the water element. The air element is present in the form of gases, as in the air surging in and out of the lungs. The fire element is present in the heating processes of the body, as in the digestion of food. <coughs> These same characteristics of solidity, fluidity, heat, and motion permeate, compose, and define all material form outside the body as well. From them, the variegated objects of the world get their distinctive appearance of grass, clouds, 
kites, living bodies, scuffed up dust, and concrete cities. So that, this is their per periodic table, isn't it? <laughs> there is. I'm next, right? Yes. Yeah. There is no difference between the primary elements within the body and those outside it. The earth element is everywhere, <clears throat> simply the earth element. Water is water, fire is fire, air is air. That is to say, the quality of solidity is intris intrinsically the same within and without, as are fluidity, heat, and motion. Beneath the astonishing multiplicity and variety of the physical universe, there is to be found just the sameness, the impersonality of these elements. All of them, according to the Buddha, should be seen for what they are and regarded in this way. This is not mine. This is not what I am. This is not myself. Majima Nakaya 28. If one in fact regards the physical elements and the objects built out of them in this way, one will lose one's compulsive appetite for them and will be moved to turn away from them, to cease running after them in their various guises. And this is exactly the point of Buddhist analysis and contemplations of material form. From craving, there arise the numberless kinds of suffering and this craving is traceable to and supported by a persistent ignorance about the nature of reality. When, therefore, the investigator perceives and considers the component parts of the objects of his senses, down even to these bare elements or qualities, he begins to erode the ignorance that has so long kept, him, kept up suffering. With the growing knowledge of what really composes and holds together attractive and repulsive forms, he becomes less susceptible to craving, and as craving faded, fades, so does suffering. But why is it, we might wonder, that craving for material things, these blends of earth, water, fire, and air that seem so much more trustworthy than the shadowy stuff of the mind, should necessarily lead to suffering? On such a brave summer day as this, as we admire the colorful kites that shake and soar, we feel for the moment a sense of comfort and, let us admit, a gush of intense liking for many agreeable objects in our view. The world jumps at us with its sounds and scents and colors, and we can hardly keep from welcoming them. To be obsessed with material things is surely bad, but might we not frankly call some of them good and desirable and get what we can what we can out of them. Does being compounded of impersonal elements necessarily detract from their worth? Let us look further then into Buddhist doctrine to find our way, if we can, both to understanding and to peaceful dwelling in the world. Craving is, first of all, a taste, a state of incompleteness and tension and imbalance. If the interval between the onset of craving and its satisfaction is long enough, we can clearly recognize it as frustration, a, manifest, a manifestly painful condition. As the Buddha pointed out, not getting what we want is a kind of suffering. But even if craving quickly attains its goal, the gratification is often a pantry. This 
integrating a Sharpie compensation for the each, the F and the effort involved. Our minds mislead us. We have imagined riches reward than was actually forthcoming. So disappointment is another type of suffering. Feeling disappointed, we allow craving to gather itself again and launch out in another direction. And the dismay process continues. And why should our minds mislead us? Simply because we have not perceived rightly to begin with. We have not understood things as they really exist. We have not comprehended the fundamental emptiness of the objects that attract us or repel us. We skip over the task of systematic observation and inquiry, giving no thought to the elements or factors beneath appearance. Agitated by heedless desire, assuming, assuming stability in what is unstable and lacking knowledge of the compounded nature of things, we habitually wander into error. These appealing forms, these concrete objects of bulk and volume that seem to all- You're a little uh, low in volume. Can you turn it up? Uh, I don't have a volume control that I'm aware of, but- What is the bottom? Uh, I'm looking at that uh, for what Peg pointed out last week. See, I disagree with her. I think it's the opposite. She said to uncheck that, and I think the automated is- is good but anyway how's that better okay it, it made it worse last week better this week so oh that's much oh, better now right now really good yeah I think you're closer to okay oh that's much better 100 times 400 times okay was it uh and why should it, our minds mislead us is that the paragraph yeah, of these appealing forms. The next one. I read that one. These appealing forms, these concrete objects of bulk and volume that seem to offer what is most real and reliable, that strike our senses so insistently, do not yield and cannot yield what we most hope for, a complete and undying gratification. The Buddha was perfectly aware that the world abounds in enjoyable things but he saw their fatal imperfection, their impermanence. When confused and uninformed beings passionately pursue what is temporary, provisional, and sure to change, misery is to be expected. When craving arises, suffering will follow. Material forms, for all their perceived solidity and immediacy, are traditionally arisen, and whether they change slow or fast, subject to dissolution. We might label as good or valuable some of the colorful and appealing forms surrounding us on this fine day, but we ought to realize that they certainly will not remain so, and this fact indeed should be counted against their presumed intrinsic worth. It is not that beautiful things are necessarily unreal, only that their reality, their actual nature is variable, conditioned, fleeting, and incapable of satisfying our desires for permanent pleasure. Beautiful objects and pleasant experiences are <coughs> part of our world and not bad in themselves. The person who works hard, who fulfills his or her duties, who behaves virtuously 
will in time in this world or another receive various sorts of good fortune like wealth and health and comfort and these are relatively speaking advantageous and gratifying things yet none of these neither material possessions nor pleasant sensory experiences nor even the <coughs> the blessing of long life ought to be confused with the ultimate good physical object, a chair or a leaf or a clod of earth, is a compound of impersonal empty qualities. And this fact is important to us because whether the object is beautiful, valuable, delightful, or useful to us, knowing its actual transitory nature can prevent us from craving it ignorantly, grasping it foolishly, and suffering as a consequence. Mindful contemplation of material form as well as of the four mental aggregates corrects our tendency to latch onto things greedily and gives a sense of moderation and balance that will be invaluable for the attainment of enlightenment. One variety of material form that we particularly need to contemplate is this human body itself. It is the object with which we are most deeply and immediately concerned though probably more by instinct than by detailed observation, and more when pain erupts than when comfort prevails. In the lack of reflection or the lack of good instruction to the contrary, we habitually consider the body as me or my body. And assuming we can keep it healthy as a source of pride, satisfaction, and self-confidence, or else in the unhappy case of illness or injury as a source of pain, shame, and anxiety, among all, changing, disintegrating, fluctuating shapes, it is the one we most urgently intend to preserve, to embellish, and to serve. Because the human body is so marvelous in its complexity and its abilities, it may be a surprise to learn that Buddhism, far from admi admiring and praising this preeminent object, regards it with no notable coolness, with worry detachment, as an assemblage of parts of no inherent jump, the body in the Buddhist view is neither to be adored or tormented. It is to be investigated with the same revision and detachment as the me mental factors of the human personality. That the body is central to our happiness and our suffering, we can readily understand, but we learn from the party text, text that the body can may also be a prime means to enlightenment. One thing hormones, if developed and frequently practiced, leads to a deep stirring, stirring of the mind to create benefit, to create security from tone, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to the attainment of vision and knowledge, to a happy abiding to this very life, to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and deliverance, what is that one thing? It is the mindful contemplation of the body. Anguttara Nikaya 1.21 The Buddha recommends various kinds of contemplation of the body, such as mindfulness of breathing, contemplation of the postures or positions that the body can assume, and careful awareness of the physical process involved in moving about, eating, and carrying out, all the activities of daily life. 
Moreover, the Buddha recommends the contemplation of the body's impure parts, such as skin, bones, sinews, blood, and many other organs, in the way that one might impersonally investigate a sack full of different kinds of grain. With this objective attitude, one may analyze the body in terms of its basic elements, the solidity, fluidity, heat, and motion that underlie its conventional appearance. Moreover, the meditator may consider the body as if it were dead and thrown away and passing through the natural stages of decomposition down to mere bones and dust, constantly reflecting in this way. This body of mind also has this nature, has this destiny, and cannot escape it. Thus he cools down his painful fever of attachment, chastens vanity, and readies himself to live peacefully with reality. I don't know where he's getting this the, about these impure parts. Did he say before why these are impure? He, he said they were like earth element, the, the bones at least. Yeah, I don't remember him saying why the skin, bones, sinews, blood, and many other organs are impure. And the other, the other thing is that he's not mentioning is when Buddha gave this meditation to the monks of, with the body and they were so freaked out that the Buddha kind of took that back. Donna, you remember that, right? I remember it. Yeah. So he's, he's not saying that part either. Okay. I guess we go on. Let's see. Who? Who last read? Clark? No. Uh, Paul. Donna? Paul. Please. Paul. Okay. Yeah. In all these contemplations, the aim of the meditator is to overcome his innate attachment to the body and understand it clearly and unsentimentally in its conditionally arisen and perishable nature. Of such a person, the Buddha says, he abides contemplating the body as body in this way, either in himself or externally, or in himself and externally. Or he contemplates the body in either its factors of origination or its factors of fall, or its factors of origination and fall. Or else mindfulness that there is a body is established in him to the extent of bare knowledge and remembrance of it, while he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how a monk abides contemplating the body as a body. That's from the Diga Nikaya and the Majima Nikaya. Such exercises can free the meditator from bondage, clinging, worry, and fear regarding the body, and make way for equanimity based on mature understanding. The body is ultimately just rupa or matter, just neutral material elements in dynamic and temporary association. But on account of the ignorance, it becomes a focus of ferocious craving, fascination, lust, fear, obsession, and vanity. Mindful contemplation of the body's usually ignored unattractive aspects serves to pull the overreaching mind back to a healthy balance. Uh, but on such a splendid afternoon as this, entertained by fresh breezes, surrounded by vigorous, vibrant people running, exercising, playing ball in a scene of sunny recreation, 
we might feel quite disinclined to reflect on the disagreeable characteristics of the human body. So I don't think Buddha meant them to be seen as, as disagreeable. I'm just looking it up here um, in this book in the Buddha's words. Yeah. And there's a whole section, uh, this is under uh, mindfulness of the body. Um, well, there's mindfulness of breathing, the four postures, clear comprehensions, and unattractiveness of the body. And it says specifically, again, monks, a monk reviews this same body up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the head, bounded by skin as full of many kinds of impurity, thus. In this body, there are head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, bruises. And then feces, bile, phlegm, pus, sweat, blood, fat, tears, grease, spittle, snot. So he's taking it right out of that. Yeah, it was a, another book a couple of years ago where where he retracted. The Ananda came to him or something. Is that the way you remember it, Donna? And said they're really freaking out over this contemplation. Well, they're and, killing themselves. I'm sorry. What? I thought, I thought that Peg said that they were committing suicide. Wait, wait, your kind of your voice is going away. I wonder why that is. Um, I thought she said that they were um, committing suicide. They were what? Committing suicide. They're oh. killing themselves. She said that. I don't know if that's exactly what we read, but they were very disturbed. Yeah, in the Buddha, uh, I, I, I mean Buddhist, uh, they call. Some of the uh, the main site uh, reciting Buddhist the Buddhism, they mentioned that. Uh, yeah, when he mentioned of, uh, the inferiority of the body, more than thousand monks um, kill themselves. No, hire someone to kill themselves. Oh, hire someone. Yes. Yeah, hire some uh, like hunters something uh, or someone like that. And Buddha had had a lesson after that. So mm. yeah, he tried to teach them. Um, teach people about the impurity for them to not have the craving, but not to like this, like to hate the body that much that they have to kill themselves. That extreme. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what, what the actual word was that we're translating to impure. Because I, I sense that it just, this is a, this is just what you have, not that it's pure or impure. You know, we think of gross. impure a, a it's negative. Like gross. It's just like gross blood and nails and pus and all that. It's just gross. I don't think it's like um, you know ham being against your religion. Well, I don't know if he I don't know if he meant it as as gross in the way we use the word gross. I mean, it it again, it's it's what what we are, what we have. You know, like like you wouldn't shriek. I mean, he didn't mean that we would shriek away from it and say, you know, ick or something. Like, you would just see it for what it is. I don't know. He said unattractiveness of the body. So it's that's what I think. That's what he's that's what he's pointing to in in this in this in this portion of the meditation of the body. Yeah, but I wonder if it's more of a, neut a neutral than a really negative. 
thing that we are taking it as. I think it would be more like seeing it as a doctor sees it rather than getting kind See, of... See, that's what I, I think. I, I agree completely, Clark. But why? I mean, you're saying it's purely... I don't know. We should ask Trouty. He's, um, well, he's going through a contemplation of, of uh, non-craving. So a, not, not a non-attachment to that, the parts of the body that we like. Yeah, the, the question is, is, is he going to neutral or is he going to... I think to stop the clinging, he's going kind of to the negative. So it won't be something that you want to cling to. Well, even, I don't know. I, I, get, okay, I think it's translator. Okay. Uh, I think the more common problem that most people will have is to be too attached to bodies. So I, th I think it's just trying to undo that and get it back to neutral rather than right. just being... By, right. Right. By contemplating the, the disagreeable parts as in like your, your kidneys or your organs or your poop or something. Yeah, like, like just look at like some really close pictures of the hair follicle, you know, it's just, just kind of is what it is. You can take right. it as gross, but, you know, you know, if you're looking at that compared to uh, like Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, you know. Right. It's, it's that kind of comparison. I mean, I knew someone who was a medical photographer for the, for the um, army and he talked a little bit about uh, years ago he had done this and he talked a little bit about that but the, completely without feeling you know without revolt any yeah he wasn't revolted at all i mean you this is your job like I'm, and also i knew someone who was studying medical illustration so it was a similar thing okay where are we my brother just finished medical school and him and his classmates would eat pizzas around the cadavers while they were working on them. Oh yeah, you get pretty, pretty desensitized. Like a car. Okay, so, where, are, where are we? Who's reading? Am I reading? I, didn't you just read? I was thinking it was my okay. turn. But okay. I'm not sure where you stopped. Did you stop I, at healthy balance? I don't think I finished. Um, yeah, you have not finished yet. Okay, we are perhaps, is that the paragraph we're on? Yes. We are perhaps privately even a little embarrassed that we feel any revulsion toward the body for it is not the predominant opinion of our society that the body is, or at least should be, beautiful, admirable, entrancing, magnificent, glorious. Still, perhaps more than a glance across these happy acres of parkland is needed Perhaps what is absent from the scene has significance. The realities of humanities do not correspond with its fantasies and ideals. If we look closer at these laughing faces and muscular forms bobbing past us, we notice that these are mostly young people, certainly well-fed and obviously free from debilitating illness. Where are the aged, the exhausted, the sick, the incapacitated? If we are going to hang on to our dear belief in the loneliness of the body, can loveliness. we loveliness. loveliness of the body, can we exclude them from our thought? If we if a few hale people are skipping freely over the grass, how many others lie groaning in hospital beds, enduring pain? These are some facts we simply cannot get around. 
one thing, the body, no matter how strong and splendid, ages. It does not long retain those characteristics we so admire, but takes on the unwelcome characteristics of age. Furthermore, the body sickens. It shakes and shudders and malfunctions. It gives rise to discomfort, misery, pain. Furthermore, the body dies. Eventually, it breaks down entirely and ceases to function. All the qualities we admire in the body are impermanent. Even if we confine our attention to bodies still vigorous, not yet old or seriously ill, we find support for the Buddhist view. Even a body conventionally considered athletic or beautiful or attractive is decidedly impure and is kept from appearing so and causing general disgust only by ceaseless effort and ingenuity. Consider the labors that must be performed just to make the body functional and presentable each day. The feeding and chewing and swallowing, scrubbing of teeth, the washing of skin and hair. Left to itself, even for a short while, the body becomes filthy and begins to stink. This is not an aberration. It is perfectly normal and also, lamentably, disgusting. Such is the nature of the body, a nature we so hastily and automatically disguise that we can, for a time, actually forget there is an impurity present at all, but only for a time. Despite our unwillingness to pay attention, change, age, illness, or uncleanliness eventually breaks into our awareness. Desire is driven away from one material form and hurries to fasten upon another whose surfaces can meet for the moment its fickle and unpredictable requirements. All surfaces and all interiors, however, give way to the assaults of time and illness, and even in radiant youth, reveal undeniably repulsive aspects. Buddhist contemplations of the body are sensible means by which the determined meditator can come to know cause reality and learn to live intelligently and without unnecessary perturbation. Bodies we must see are after all not supernatural wonders, but only imperfect held together material rupa, heaps of impure parts not objective in themselves. Need we upset ourselves so much over them? Because the body is ever liable to injury, decay, and disease, we cannot trust it too far. It supports us, but in another sense, we support it, enduring its indispositions and failures rushing to attend to its requirements, feverishly anticipating annoyances, and the load may become frightful in times of serious travail if we remain sunk in the conviction that the afflicted body actually belongs to us, is inseparable from ourself. This is a dangerous form of bondage that the Buddha warns us against, advising us to regard the body as a source of peril and trouble. Now, Agibasana, this body that has material form consists of the four great elements. It is procreated by a mother and father and built up out of rice and bread. It is subject to impermanence, to anointing and rubbing, to disillusion and disintegration. It must be regarded as impermanent, a suffering, as a boil, as a dart, 
as a calamity, as an affliction, as alien, as disintegrating, as void, as not self. When he, the wise man, regards it so, he abandons his desire and affection for it, and his habit of treating it is as the necessary basis for all his inferences. Rajahima Nikaya. If we regard our own bodies in such ways with great circumspection and wariness about their potential to cause pain, we will not be drawn into delusion, but will experience the independence of thought necessary for overcoming suffering and attaining enlightenment. But how, we might wonder, are we to treat the body and the whole physical side of life without undue attachment? Here we should remember the great principle of moderation and non-extremism taught by the Buddha in his first discourse. There is devotion to pursuit of pleasure and sensual desire, which is low, coarse, vulgar, ignoble, and harmful. And there is devotion to self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, and harmful. The middle way discovered by the Tathagata avoids both these extremes it gives vision, gives knowledge, and leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. And what is that middle way? It is the noble eightfold path. That is to say, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Vinaya Mahav. Mahavaga 1.6, Samyutta Nikaya 56.11. Heedlessly indulging in luxury is an extreme, harmful extreme. And so also is tormenting or mistreating the body in a mistaken effort at spiritual purification. The body should be <coughs> treated as a useful vehicle taken care of kept clean, nourished moderately. Excuse me. Uh, yawning and reading allowed adequate rest and <laughs> tended to in illness. It does not require fond attachment, only practical maintenance and repair. We can get a general idea of what the middle way means in this regard by considering the four basic material supports of the Buddhist monk robes, alms, food, shelter, and medicine. And using any of these, the well-practicing monk is supposed to reflect properly on the, their purposes. That is, he uses his robes just to guard himself from cold and heat and biting, stinging creatures, <laughs> and to cover himself modestly. He takes food not out of greed for pleasure, or desire to make his body attractive, which is to allay hunger and to keep the body healthy and comfortable so that he may follow a worthy path of life. He makes use of lodging or shelter for the sake of seclusion and to avoid cold and heating and biting, stinging creatures and the afflictions of weather. He takes wet medicine to dispel and keep away the painful sensations of illness and to stay in the best health possible. 
These are specifically monastic guidelines, but the principles behind them also apply to lay people. The human body has certain basic needs for health, and these ought to be attended to judiciously, simply in a practical spirit, so that life may be carried on with a minimum of physical suffering, in reasonable comfort, without veering to the dangerous extremes of luxury or self-torment. The Buddha says that before he left the household life, he enjoyed great luxury, but eventually he found this unsatisfactory and unsuited to one who was profoundly troubled by the question of suffering. So he gave up such indulgence and left home. Later, as a young ascetic, he strenuously practiced various forms of sort of torment, but ultimately he found them useless and profitless. After he reached full enlightenment, after he achieved perfect balance, he practiced and taught a simple, healthy, and energetic style of life. Material form of whatever variety within or outside of the body is nothing permanent or trustworthy, but only the conditionally arisen restless combination of solidity, fluidity, heat, and motion. Through intellectual analysis and direct contemplation, we can find no self or ego in it, no unchangeable grains of reality, no ultimate gravel or grit. Matter, it seems, is as mysterious and tenuous as mind, and as helpless to furnish satisfaction for craving. We might run to the material shows of the world for comfort or reassurance, but impermanence, suffering, and non-self characterize the material as well as the mental side of existence. Suppose, for example, that we command this material thing, this body which we call mind, never to get sick or never to grow old and frail. What will happen? Suppose we stipulate that flowers shall not fade in our house nor food grow stale. What will happen? So poor is our power, so absurd our ownership. As we walk or stand or turn about, shut our eyes on this brilliant afternoon, remembering the teaching of the Buddha, we might begin to wish for peace beyond all grasping, beyond the, go the ghostly pretense of the elements. Let us do our day's work. Let us, let us feel the refreshing breeze, but not be tenant. It. it is not ours, but only the air element, imperm impersonal and restless, the ground yielding aha, and the waters that triple in fountains are only manifestations of these continuous processes of nature. If we claim any of these as ours, we will suffer with their inevitable change. If we let them go on their way, we will not suffer on their account. When we attach ourselves to material forms, thinking to find lasting happiness in the crude certainty of what can be touched, eaten, drunk, worn, etc., we fool ourselves and become dismayed spectators at processes that run away from us out of control. When the necessary physical organs are functioning together, supporting one another, we say there is a body present. But our naming does not confer on it any effective identity or power to withstand change. It is still a complex of parts that, having been put together through past karma, working through the patterns of chemistry and biology, 
must necessarily break down and become scattered again in time. Our greed and aversion regarding the body are mental phenomena which arise based on a mistaken view of the body and ignoring of its compounded and transient nature. Our food and drink as well, our clothes and furniture and houses and all material things we look for, we look to for our health and comfort should be viewed correctly not as the appurtenances of an ego, but only as empty and perishable forms which should not be allowed to drive us from our right course. And what is our right course? Kites dance across the sky this afternoon like gleeful signs, but they dance according to the wind and the limiting stream. The strolling, the strolling crowds unravel in all directions, moved by a thousand desires. We have our own intentions, our business, our errands of the moment on which our feet are carrying us. But beyond all errands, do we have a goal that is worthy to pursue? Shall we be always distracted by the flickering spectacle of earth, water, air, and fire, and wander beguiled through an endless gallery of forms? Or shall we, by patient mindfulness and considered effort, make our, cont our contemplative course more sure and straightforward the end of all suffering in the highest emancipation. Now the grass gives out and we have concrete underfoot again. The metal and glass automobiles throw off brilliance. Buildings swing by in the varying din in the bustling air. Still our journey continues. A body is walking, but it is not ours. A breath comes and goes, ownerless. Clouds cruise majestically above. Eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind register impressions. Not in the exploitation of any of these is our peace to be found, but rather in the calm understanding of them and the letting go of them. Shall we always be pulled along by rollicking kites on strength? All scenes pass, all forms dissolve. The diligent seeker after the good, moral in his actions, kindly disposed toward living beings, contemplates what comes and goes until, emptied of delusion, enriched with vision, he releases all and knows himself released. Fifteen, the question of progress. Those who undertake long or difficult journeys do not usually do it for the sake of the scenery alone. They have a destination <coughs> in mind, the thought of which inspires them in the first place and keeps them going through all kinds of country. On journeys of the religious sort, as well as the purely geographical, Travelers want to learn that they are making progress toward the goal they have set for themselves or that appears simply necessary to them. Buddhists, like everyone else, want to get somewhere and to finish what they have begun. And if they are determined, they find that undertaking the path of Dharma confers <laughs> benefits that are directly and presently visible. Thus, it is possible to obtain some idea of progress, although this progress 
may paradoxically come as heightened understanding of what is yet to be done. We might not concern ourselves so much with progress if the emphasis of the Dhamma were on faith more than on action. We then might merely await as a reward for our faith or constancy some approaching deliverance. But when we have come to see the universe as vastly uncertain, vastly and challengingly free, and when the idea sinks into us that we are ultimately responsible for our own happiness or unhappiness in past, present, and future, then we feel more and more the need to shake off the fear or paralysis that now grips us and to make our way to safer ground. That gentle smile on the visage of the Buddha, that history and art record both calms us and draws us forward. Somewhere ahead, beyond the forbidding obstacles of the day, lie serenity and sweetness. We want to see the mileposts passing, to breathe clearer air and to be assured that our exertions count for something. This is not to say that faith is unimportant. Faith in Buddhism has more the nature of confidence than of passive belief, and it underlies the striving of the disciple who, having seen that the Buddha's advice has proven good so far, is willing to trust him further, testing and confirming with warmer devotion. Sometimes too much is made of the analytical, logical aspect of the Dhamma, as if faith were an embarrassing relic that should be quickly discarded. Yet intellectual study by itself does not secure freedom sterile technique falls short and baseless theorizing only misleads. The Dhamma, rightly practiced, engages both the sympathies and the intellect. It unites the fragments of human sensibility into a healthy whole and makes possible a balanced progress toward happiness and security. In our life form, it may go like this. Someone hears the teaching of the Buddha, the profound Revel revelation. <clears throat> Thank you. Re Re revelation of the cause and the cure of suffering. He ponders the meaning of the Dhamma, Dhamma and looking around at the world, begins to see aspects of those, those truths everywhere reflected back to him. Curious, wondering, watching, he notices that things events and people seem to conform to the laws of Dharma. And he feels the first surge, surge of elation and hope that this indeed might be the way for him. He begins to act on the first principles of giving, morality, and concentration of mind, and soon notices a lightness in his spirit and a sense of expanded clarity and self-control. Faith awakes in him and grows brighter side by side with his investigation consciousness. Inspired and cheer, he realized there is more to be done in the way of practice and more to be gained in the way of freedom. Putting forth effort, he magnifies his blessing and in recognizing those blessings, he understands he is making progress. And he makes that sound really easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout the Pali text, there are many references to stages of practice, 
and levels of achievement, such as seven stages of purification, four super mundane paths and four fruitions, four meditative absorptions and four immaterial spheres. Progress is also noted in reverse fashion in the abandonment of harmful conditions. These categories and formulations are worth studying in the text as they not only describe from various standpoints the journey to liberation, but impress on the student's mind the dynamic and cumulative nature of the Dhamma so that there can be no mistaking both the existence of higher and higher levels of attainment and the advantage of reaching them. A sound theoretical knowledge will also help steer one away from dead ends in meditation and unjustified self-criticism or self-congratulation. If one knows that a certain level of achievement is characterized by specific virtues and abilities, then one can more accurately gauge the state of one's practice. Lacking such knowledge, new practitioners might think they're getting nowhere or with more optimism than judgment might erroneously suppose themselves very advanced. Well, it is true that only the practical training of the mind can cause true insight to arise. We may be sure that the Buddha did not speak so many discourses on Dhamma for nothing. He wanted his disciples to make progress and to that, and to that end, he taught them precise details about the nature of the aggregates of existence, functioning of the senses, the deeds to be done and those not to be done, the arising and ceasing of defilements and more. People differ in their capacity to absorb doctrine and it is noteworthy that the Buddha taught with a shrewd awareness of his hearers' situations, capabilities, and personal biases, giving to some only the simplest moral injunctions and encouragement to practice generosity and to others detailed explanations of the process of nature. The Buddha overburdened nobody, but taxed his followers to the limits of their ability and exhorted them to expand those limits. Thus, when we attempt to equal the achievements of the disciples of the old, of old, we should, we ought to see that they are as well prepared as they not necessarily by accumulating great scholarly knowledge, for indeed they varied among themselves in this dimension, but by remembering that and pondering available lessons as well as we can. We need not become scholars, but we should at least try to make clear in our own minds the fundamental points of the Buddha's doctrine so that we can see where and how to employ our energy. Then, as curiosity or need moves us, we may investigate more deeply in the Dhamma. Simply, for useful work, we must gather solid information. To build a good house, we must have proper tools. To make a safe journey, we need a map. Suppose Someone says, I've read several books and I've been practicing meditation for a good while now and I feel reverence toward the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, but I don't feel like I'm making any progress. My mind is still full of turmoil. As such, pro as such problems are extremely common <coughs> among serious practitioners, it would be useful to examine the idea of progress more closely. 
Upon being introduced to the Dhamma, students might, in their enthusiasm, hurry past deep fundamental teachings to get to what they think are the good parts, descriptions of exalted states of mind, psychic powers of varieties of sainthood, and nibbana. These descriptions are valuable because they whet the spiritual appetite and stimulate action, but their very attractiveness may cause impatient students to forget the long road to perfection <coughs> and to wonder why they cannot leap right into it. Um, it does indeed clarify vision and ease the mind, but often in subtle degrees. In fact, to know at a given moment that one has a confused or impatient state of mind is itself an indication of progress. The untutored neophyte eager to dive into glorious experiences might have no such awareness and might reject the idea that his mind is not functioning perfectly already. He might be impatient and only hazily conscious of some impediment to the splendor he thinks should be his. But a little intelligent practice reveals that the answers to important questions and the questions themselves are deeper and more involved than they'd seemed at first. When I think of progress in the Dhamma journey, the fruitful fields of knowledge, from false ideas of our own nature and our place in the universe, we proceed to clearer and clearer assessments based on impartial observation. In other words, we make progress by learning what we are and where we stand regardless of whether that is presently agreeable or disagreeable. It is useless to imagine ourselves vaulting over the last barrier to enlightenment when we are presently strolling along an easy road that has scarcely yet begun to rise into the mountains. And it is also useless to mope and delay, supposing we can never leave behind our stiff and stifling habits and go where we ought to go. It's the morning's walk on an evening's meditation, we may be conscious of mental commotion, confusion, and anxiety. Instead of mourning, oh, I'm not getting anywhere. We could do better to reflect. These mental states are arising and passing away. This is the way the mind is now. Our first object ought to be not to control the mind in on its operations, but to know the mind. If we can simply note pleasurable or painful or neutral phenomena as they occur without instantly interpreting them, commenting on them, or embracing them as mine. They are moving in the right direction. Many of our problems come from not knowing, not seeing things directly and accurately, and consequently behaving foolishly. To get along expeditiously, we must pay attention to mind and body at the present moment in their present condition. Nobody can outrun his own feet. But, but if the path is as true and fine as it is supposed to be, why is it that we have such a hard time getting our feet out of the mud? Why can't we move faster? No doubt we would waste no time in making our way to liberation were it not for certain troublesome factors called the five hindrances, nirvana. The first of these is sensuous desire, the recurrent fascination with the objects of the senses, which tugs the mind away from its work and beguiles it with sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and imagination. 
second hindrance is ill will, which means all degrees of animosity toward others. The third is lethargy and drowsiness, lethargy and drowsiness. The fourth is agitation and worry. The fifth is skeptical doubt, not the investigative reserve of the careful thinker, but rather compulsive disbelief and timidity regarding the Dhamma. These five pestiferous agents act to weaken us and to deter us from practicing. So normal, so natural, so intrinsically part of us do they seem that we often have difficulty in recognizing them as impersonal and harmful mental irritants. And under their influence, we think too literally. I want, I dislike, I am tired, I am agitated, I am doubtful. Beneath the ordinary use of language lurks a tenacious delusion of self that keeps us from seeing what is really going on. Sensuous desire entices us here and there with gaudy trifles so that we forget our duty. Ill will roils the heart so that concentration falls apart. Lethargy and drowsiness drain away our vigor and stupefy us with illusions of weakness and fatigue with a droning suggestion that we do not have the strength for practice. Agitation and worry attack us from another extreme, setting us to fantasizing, scheming, fretting, like mice gnawing on a board. It is quite a difficult condition for carrying out impartial observation. Skeptical doubt infiltrates the mind in the guise of judgment and whispers, Maybe the Dhamma is wrong. What if this is all a waste of time? This is too hard for me. Maybe I should give up. And on and on endlessly with this tune. Fortunately, the five hindrances are not invincible. They slow progress, but they do make it in, but they do not make it impossible. Therefore, when we are concerned about our seeming inability to move ahead, we should remember to note the hindrances as they appear, just as impermanent tendencies which, like all phenomena, rise and fall according to conditions. Confront them, they retreat. Push at them, they give way. These legions of deleterious thoughts and moods that assail us draw their power from our ignorance of their real nature. Enchanted since birth, we fear shadows and mirages, but the experience of Dhamma with its radical revelation of fundamentals breaks enchantment and discloses the freedom and responsibility that have always been ours. How to reform this recalcitrant mind is a question best answered by the journey along the path of discovery itself. We are often naively intent on making the mind behave exactly the way we would like it to behave. An impossible undertaking, <coughs> as we find out to our disappointment. Then we wrongly conclude we have not made or cannot make progress. But when we stop predicting what we should encounter and simply study what arises and how it arises, then we have made the first strides toward understanding and training the mind. 
it should be no disgrace to learn that we have frailties, that we cannot hold concentration for more than a few consecutive seconds, that our attention is carried off by absurd whims. This very looking and this calm awareness hasten the birth of liberating insight. When the mind is burdened with defilement, troubled with anger, greed, resentment, pride, and other unwholesome qualities, we should try to know it is as it is without reacting automatically. When a thought, a volition, a memory, or a desire appears, we may mark the place, mark the moment with a light comprehending glance. This is how equanimity can come to be by putting aside the temptation to get tangled up in mental circuses and instead acknowledging with minute awareness the arising and dissolution of jostling phenomena. When we watch sensitive to subtle influences, we see that each instance of aversion or craving erupts from prior conditions, lasts a while and fades away to be followed by more little twinges. Why should we vex ourselves about this or that droplet in the waterfall of time? The job of the meditator is not to de decorate the mind with cosmetic imagination, but to know by purposeful attention how conditioned things, good or bad, succeed one another right in this very moment. <clears throat> we find ourselves stuck and confused, not from lack of ready truths, to see, but from spiritual vision still hampered by spiritual ills. Complete enlightenment or errantship depends on the destruction of sense desire, desire for eternal existence, wrong views and ignorance, and such destruction is brought about by stripping off delusion, waving away mist, chasing out laziness, until we confront nature just as it is. Indeed, we must travel, we must make the miles go by. But the astute traveler on this path does not act like a tourist, frightening himself with souvenirs and bric-a-brac, but rather becomes less acquisitive, abandoning oppressive and demoralizing entertainments, dumping the baggage of opinions, so that his burden grows lighter and lighter until it disappears entirely. By racing widely, we lose ground, and by simply buying and preparing, we pull ahead. In a sense, onward in the Dhamma is pre preparatory. We are working with our own minds. We prepare ourselves to understand what passes through our senses. Indolence, indolence and Agitation are off the shoulders of the road, and our way lies between where we should travel with the new speed, but judiciously, like horses, our enthusiasm need direction. It is fine to urge them on, but it is advisable to keep hold of the reins. The benefits of the Dhamma, of Dhamma practice may appear quickly, but still not be recognized because of their quiet, subtle nature. The practitioner may not be able to measure neatly his advance from one stage to another, 
but he may sense gradual momentous change in himself. Just as a carpenter or a carpenter's assistant sees on his adze handle the marks made by his fingers and thumb, but does not thereby have the knowledge. So much of the adze handle was worn away by me today, so much yesterday, so much at another time, but merely has the knowledge that it is being worn away by its wearing away. In the same way, monks, a monk living devoted to the practice of mind development, does not have the knowledge. So much of the taints was worn away today, so much yesterday and so much at another time. But he has the knowledge they are being worn away by their wearing away. Samyutta Nikaya 22.101. One benefit of the Dhamma is the sense of direction and purpose that comes into daily life. Whereas before we may have been lurching between occupations and diversions with little hope or conviction, we now find that we have, however tenuously, connected ourselves with something higher and truer. Perhaps we could not give an exact account of it, but we sense that our time spent in study and meditation is a piece of life well worked, a field fairly sown, and that we have begun to apply our energies rightly. Another benefit, another mark of progress is the, t <clears throat> excuse me, is the tendency to explore and investigate more than before. We want to know for ourselves. We are less willing to receive and react to information. Progress can also be noted in increased attention to and awareness of the causes and results of our intentional actions. We might see, for instance, how a mental state of anger when unchecked gives rise to intemperate words that annoy others who then retaliate against us, causing pain and resentment and a hundred other ricocheting effects not soon controlled. Consequently, Respect for the moral precepts increases as we recognize their value in protecting us from our foolish cravings and reflexes. We grow more conscious, not only of what should be avoided, of what should be done as in generosity, helpfulness, and pity for suffering beings. Then there is the progress that is nothing grander than the more intimate, more precise knowledge of our own minds with all their weakness. How could we heal ourselves if we did not see our wounds? A careful acquired knowledge of how we fail or fall short corrects misunderstanding, deflates a swelling of conceit, and shows us our actual situation without the frightful shadows of imagination. With such daylight knowledge, we may become braver, able to look into the maelstrom of suffering without running away. The Buddha taught that all worldly things are caused and conditioned. The practice of Dhamma sets up favorable conditions of virtue, concentration and understanding that besides leading on toward enlightenment help us here and now in dealing with troubles and fears knowing the mind 
be it scared or confident, shaken or calm, allows us to recognize and employ its powers for the good. Finally, we may see progress in the growth of faith, even in the frailest green shoot out of the ground of a weary heart. What kind of faith? Just the small bloom of gladness over what we have done, the honest effort we have made, the faint smile of the spirit that begins to answer the Buddha smile, the hopeful, wandering, peaceful feeling which we cannot well explain, which perhaps we cannot speak of at all except to murmur to ourselves, this Dhamma is a good thing. None of these signs of progress are very startling, and the inattentive bring wisdom, might my wisdom, become discouraged and wander away in doubt. But with a proper understanding of the gradual organic nature of the Dhamma, this will not happen. Do we long for release from our wounds and cares? Do we aspire to Nibbana, the end of suffering? This goal, transcendent as it is, can be reached by the perseverance, even though our confidence and energy do not yet cut like lightning through on difficulties. We might see at least what we did not see before, that we live in this condition and have that yet to attain. Let us reflect, why did the Buddha, standing alone in sublime completeness, decide to teach others? Could he not perceive the flagrant weakness of humanity? Could he not notice how quickly we tire, how slowly we understand, how miserably we excuse ourselves? We must suppose he could. Why then did he reveal the majestic Dhamma? It might be, indeed, it seems quite likely that the Buddha himself had confidence even in erring men and women, and certainly he had compassion. There is, we must remember, that smile of his, that ineffable smile that has stayed so vivid throughout history, that subtle curve of the lips on the statues and effigies of the master, that gentleness, timeless, profound smile of enlightenment. Should we not then take heart and by our faith and practice do at least some small homage to the great stage, to the great sage who did not refuse to help us. It matters less where we have been than where we are now and where we shall direct our steps. Treasuring, treasuring some breath of wonder, some blossom of truth, some tender newborn hope, we have come out of the, the badlands and climbed onto the up, upland trail. The horizon runs out to unknown immensities. Yesterday's camp lies far behind. The journey will continue, but we sleep tonight in a new country under a clean sky beneath the smile of the Buddha. Chapter 16, Reading the News. This morning, the Sunday newspaper lies before us on the porch, heavy, important, peremptory, as if demanding to be picked up. From habit, almost from duty, we obey, sighing in expectation of the stark symbols that will jump into our eyes with their messages of new things happening, war, strife, crime, laughter, and pathos. The headlines will draw us to the columns underneath that will relate the stories born in only these last few hours. How can so much be going on? 
every day the fast world spins off this abundance, this surfeit of news, and we have agreed, it seems, to pack our heads with it, to exclaim over reported novelties, to repeat them to others, and to treat them for lack of anything better as the newest and most significant facts of our shared experience. But now the newspaper, cold and solemn, remains unopened and heavy on our hands, and unaccountably some quirk of thought, some mood of rebelliousness, moves us to set it aside. We eye it doubtfully, wondering how long we can resist it. The day might prove tedious with our curiosity unsated, but let us anyway slip out for a walk, postponing the attack of news, turning our steps toward the boundary of the neighborhood to seek worthier intelligence or only silence. The day reveals perhaps no special wonders of nature, no prodigies of nature, of beauty. The sun keeps close within its close quarters and a breeze indifferently, indifferently cold loafs through the naked trees and swings a few withered leaves. We are rambling through early spring, moving briskly enough, getting the blood circulating. The attention of the great world with its reporters and news organization roves elsewhere <coughs> and we go unnoticed. To clear our heads, we plod out here and veer away from houses in search of solitude. Across a road and a hungry yard and a hundred yards up a little valley of oaks and beaches, the switch of traffic begins to break down, dwindling behind us, mere strings of so sound unraveling, little less significant, finally, than the crunch of our shoes over sticks. We pick up our way, we pick our way up a path alongside a shallow, unremarkable stream, while two crows, far away, squawk in gloaming and antiphony. If anything is happening in the world, we must, we think it is happening behind us. Ahead, the empty woods blur into a neutral mist. Solitude is its own event. Our breathing deepens as the traffic sounds disappear. Our legs swing and our arms brush back the green arcs of brambles. We stoop and straighten, making our way deliberately. This is a little traveled path, one that must be broken through with some attention to the entangling thorns. So exertion is called for and being called reminds us that there is a physical body here which is doing our will. The body hitches, puffs, and flexes according to its nature, while the mind cranks away on its nebulous constructions, the two together in amazing cooperation for the continuance of life. Here in the damp quiet of the woods, we begin to feel the links between body and mind, between memory and emotion, between intention and action. Cut off for now from the news, from the racket of civilization, we start to notice a network of causes and effects, seeing as from a distance this strange composite person still staggering 
hopefully after an ordeal, ideal. We follow patterns. We are patterns. And when we are not venting opinions and commentary, we might possibly trace the mystery of these patterns. We like to think ourselves original and special, but taking an objective view, what is really here except a handful of elements rolling like marbles in a box? The daily news and all our current worries only give the box a shake. The newness we admire and celebrate, then, must be deceptive. It is simply change and more change. A rearrangement, an endless alternation of gain and loss, repute and dispute, disrepute, praise and blame, happiness and suffering. Now the path arose the, the stream where icy water slipped over gray and white pebbles with a trickling sound that is not pleasant, that is not unpleasant. We paused. Here is something happening after all. We stand browning, browning absurdly at it. A human being pondering a quick, some small commercial, 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 confronting another in the patting of sensation and the throne of news that make up our lives. We find it hard to slow down enough to observe as a contemplator or to observe. And in odd moments like this, when we really want to understand what life is on about, we find ourselves staring impatiently at this or that stone or sunset as if to demand, well, what is the meaning here? But stones and sunsets and trickling streams have their own business to take care of. They go on changing like everything else, and they do not volunteer problems. Even if we had the patience to wait for a colossal revelation, revelation, would we recognize it if it came? The best nature can do for us is to show us simple truth, to show us ourselves, to display the mental and the material, so that if we are ready if we are ready, we might see through the flashy wraps of concepts and conceits. Who or what is this curious person who anxiously guesses at the world? Whose ears register the running snowmelt? Who, if anyone, experiences the sound? If we spend time just watching out here in a forgotten place, we might get an inkling, like an expensive wristwatch laid on a tree stump. We feel oddly vulnerable away from our sofas, just a hot little whirring in the great stillness. Are we ever wholly or at ease with mind and body? Surely we have been too infatuated with the dubious arrangement, ramshackle limbs wobbling along, senses popping, mind distractedly chirping, a hundred volitions scrabbling for control. We leap, or mind and body leaps, across the creek and trudge deeper into the unpromising woods where sensation rates us like little thorns until we wonder if it might be good to stop interpreting and just let the world come and go in watchful peace. In this play of life, actors gesture and declaim, banners wave, the scenery slides and changes. Oh yes, there is a lot happening in the unleafed, muddy woods. 
and if we refrain from snatching at it, we might learn something. After the freezes, thaws, and storms of winter, the trees seem strangely graceful and portentous. Change happens when we are not looking. Sand and mud have washed over the path in places. A section of creek bank has collapsed. Dead branches have fallen and cluttered the ground. Everywhere we find crisscrossing old logs sinking a little further into the earth, while above them stand the little saplings. Crows flap and quarrel in the distance. Somewhere a woodpecker taps out odd fragments of time. These things compose the present reality and deserve our thoughtful attention. We should probably leave it there, no? Right. Yes, Say 30. Thanks, Lori. Where was, where's Peg tonight, Kim? She wrote a note that she had uh, the beginning of a headache and eight hours of Zoom and oh. she was uh, OD'd. Okay. <laughs> You're better off than one night. Those are my words, the OD. Oh. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Good night, everyone. See, see you next week. See you. This is a little better, isn't it? When he talks about this stuff, then Buddhism, don't you like it a little better? Yeah, it's a little lighter. I like this part, this side of him. We haven't had it for a few weeks. <laughs> now it's back. Maybe that's why everyone dropped out of the group. <laughs> Yeah, it separates the men from the boys. <laughs> well, I was thinking as we were reading that, um, you know, this guy, I think, is a forest monk, which is, you know, I mean, that is the hardcore of the Theravadan tradition. And um, that probably... You know, he, he's a very good writer. You know, he has a wonderful choice of words. Um, but, and while we may not agree with, with his interpretation of, of Buddhism, I bet for people who practice in the Theravadan tradition to have um, this very um, kind of elegant, beautiful English language to describe um the tradition is probably, you know, a, practically a breath of fresh air. So, you know, may not be our cup of tea, but I bet there are people who really like it. Okay. Thank you. Have a great week, everyone. You too. Take care. It will be interesting. I was saying to Lori earlier, we don't know. We don't know what the world will be like in a week. Oh. Do we? <laughs> We don't know. We don't know. And we never have known. <laughs> we might have well, thought we did. We might have thought, right. We might have thought we knew, but we, now we don't even think we know. So that's a difference. Now we, now we know better. <laughs> we know we don't know. Right. Yes. Will there still be protests in a week? Yeah, probably so. Yeah, I think so. That would be my bet. Yeah. Good night, everybody. Take Good care. Night. Good night. Good night. Good night.